0: host, Riley Bounds, and this is the Solemn Podcast, where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern Renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have author Elizabeth Genovese on the podcast. Elizabeth Genovese is an Henry Prize recipient and a recent inductee in the Tennessee Literary Hall of Fame. She is the author of three collections of short stories, the most recent being Posing Nude for the Saints by the Texas Review Press. The fourth book, Palindrome, is due out from Texas Review Press in 2022. More information will be given in the show notes, including links to her author website, recent publications, and her contributor profile on the Solon website if you want to find out more. So Elizabeth, welcome, and thanks for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No problem. Well, why don't you just uh, tell us a bit about yourself?
1: Okay. Uh, well, I grew up in the Chicago area, and I went to college in Michigan, and then I ended up doing an MFA um, in fiction down at McNeese State University in Louisiana. And then after that, I moved to Tennessee, and that's where I've been ever since. Uh, I'm a teacher out here. Um I'm married. I live in, the, live in the Knoxville area, Oak Ridge, is where I actually live. And I teach creative, creative writing as much as I can when I'm not teaching my other classes.
0: Uh, what other classes do you teach?
1: Uh, English composition, American literature, things like that.
0: Oh, wow. That's a pretty wide range. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you, when did you really start uh, writing in earnest?
1: Um, I, I wrote a lot of poetry when I was in college and, um, when I graduated college, my intention was to go get a PhD in English. You know, I was thinking I was going to be an academic and I didn't know myself very well because that that's not me. It never was me. Um, but I started a PhD program and during the first year, I was so unbelievably just bored and disillusioned and I just found myself writing fiction. That's just what I was doing. I wasn't really thinking about it intellectually, you know, why am I doing this? I was just doing it. And, um, this was at the university of Iowa, which has pretty much the country's best MFA program. And I was Mm -hmm. actually living with someone who was in that program. So through her, I started, um, meeting people who were in the MFA. I started auditing classes with Marilyn Robinson Mm -hmm. and I realized that's what I wanted. I was in the wrong degree, wrong fields, wrong career path, everything. <laughs> and, um, so I started, you know, writing more seriously. And then before that first year was over, I had taken, you know, the best of my fiction and applied to an MFA program down in Louisiana and I was accepted. So I left the following year for that. So I basically just kind of changed, changed courses throughout that first year.
0: Gotcha. Um, Would you say that that was the kind of moment uh, in your development when you realized that you were a writer?
1: Yeah, um, because it, I realized that for one, like I said, I wasn't an academic. I I didn't want to, uh, to me like academia, it's the study of signs, not symbols. It's the study of dead things. And I, I really wanted to participate in something that was still breathing. And that's what art is to me, art is still alive. And when I was when I was working on my fiction, I mean, of course, it was terrible because that was my first year writing; it was absolutely awful. But I was trying, <laughs> and I just felt like I was in touch with something, um, and I wanted to stay close to that pulse. And then then I realized the MFA was a way to do that, but you know, in a in an organized, committed way. I didn't want to be a hippie type artist, just kind of throwing paint at the wall. I wanted to do do the boot camp and learn the craft and study. Um, and then when I did the MFA, just, yeah, everything felt exactly right. I knew I was, that's exactly where I was supposed to be. Gotcha.
0: Um, now, you, you you have written poetry in addition to fiction. Would you consider yourself um, a, a kind of a a poet that writes a lot of fiction or no. like a fiction writer? Oh, okay. <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> no, I'm definitely a fiction writer. Uh, I don't. I don't know I just I write poetry just once in a blue moon there's a moment you know and it's like okay this isn't supposed to be a story this is supposed to be a poem Mm -hmm. I rarely submit stuff I submit poems maybe once every two or three years to a journal um yeah I'm not a poet definitely not
0: well you are published in poetry so I mean just a little bit
1: but I'm not a poet (laughs) no
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Well, it's um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I noticed in your in your literary style, um, uh, you do have quite a quite a few poetic lines in in your fiction. Mer- Meridian, the one we published in Solemn Journal, is just chock full of them. Um, so it's 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 it seems like that's still in you somewhere, you know.
1: Oh no, it it is. I mean, I I can actually recall turning in a story once to workshop in the MFA and. The MFA director saying do you realize that like this entire first page is an iambic pentameter and I was like what are you talking about you know like I had no idea but it was kind of bred into me because I loved poetry growing up and I you know I did write it a lot but I didn't know what I was doing so mm-hmm. yeah I mean that I know that that lyricism definitely manifests itself in my work but I'm um, fiction is is my true love
0: mm. not poetry uh what about um fiction influences
1: uh, I'm, I've always been very influenced by the canonical Russians, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Um, those, mm-hmm. are, those are kind of the top two for me. Um, East of Eden by Steinbeck is one of my favorite books of all time. Mm-hmm. I love uh, Cormac McCarthy, The Road in particular, that one. Um, mm-hmm. Wallace Stegner's novels are absolutely amazing. I love Marilyn Robinson's work. I love uh, Chekhov's stories. And I think probably my favorite, more contemporary short story writer would be Andre Debus. I teach him in my classes. I just, I try to keep him as close to me as I can. He's marvelous. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I noticed that, um, like namely McCarthy, uh, some of those writers, they, they deal pretty heavily with the uh, place in their, mm-hmm. in their narrative. Um, it seems like place is really their main uh, narrative inspiration as opposed to like plot. Um, so would you say that places are a big part of your artistic inspiration too?
1: Sometimes. Um, I mean, you know, my work is more character focused, but um, I just personally have very strong responses to to setting. You know, setting is never neutral for me. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I get to know a place and it moves me and it needles me and I start thinking about, you know, what it means kind of like this what might be symbolic in the landscape. And then it just ends up sort of feeding into a story. But, you know, the the landscape doesn't birth the story. It's like the story's already there. And then I realized this is the perfect landscape for it. And then the two sort of start to work
0: together. You've you've primarily developed in the South, right? As a, as a writer, I mean.
1: Yeah, I would say I became a writer in the South. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Right. Um, yeah, I've noticed that uh, your fiction has quite a bit of grit. Um, I mean, n- not even like in tone, but just like in material. Um, Meridian is, is quite heavy. Um, and so, so is your other work. Uh, so I, I just kind of wondered like if that, if that Southern influence kind of, uh, gave you a bit of grit or is that kind of just already there?
1: No, Um, I mean, I, I haven't read, I don't read a lot of, I guess, what you would call Southern fiction um I'm not sure you know how how that came about I don't know if that has anything to do with with the region or it's just I honestly I couldn't explain to anyone how I come up with the ideas (laughs) for any of those stories I mean it's such a mysterious kind of nameless process you just wake up one day and this thing has bubbled to the surface overnight and then you know it's time to start pursuing it but um Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting you say that um I, I think probably my stories have gotten a little grittier as I've gotten older, just because the older you get kind of the more pain you witness and, you know, you go through more and you get a little more taste of hell <laughs> every mm-hmm. year. It sounds really morbid. Um, I see it as a positive thing though, but um, yeah, I, I think that my earlier fiction was a little bit fluffier because I just hadn't really seen much darkness, you know, in my, mm-hmm. my mid twenties, life was just kind of good and it was all cupcakes and balloons. So I didn't really have so much grit in the stories.
0: <laughs> take some balloons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good. Well, um, that darkness uh, that you experienced certainly gave you a lot of uh, uh, a lot of recognition. Um, you received the O. Henry Prize, and you were recently inducted into the Tennessee Literary Hall of Fame. That's that's incredible. Um, so, what was that like for you?
1: You know, honestly. Um, when I I got that email saying that I had, that I was receiving the O. Henry prize, I thought it was a practical joke. And I was, I was very close to responding. I don't know who this is, but I didn't fall for it. (laughs) Seriously. I'm not making this up um, because I had friends who, who could do that. I could see them doing that. I mean, I have a lot of prankster friends. Um, And then I read it more carefully and I was like, no, wait a minute. I think, I think that's real. And I was, I was really shocked. And, um, not just because, you know, I see, I don't really see myself as being good enough to be in an anthology like that, but also because of the the particular story that they chose. Um, after that anthology was published, actually it was pretty unpleasant. Like I had a couple people approach me who didn't even really know me and, you know, they they were very angry and they accused me of writing like a quote unquote pro-life story. Um, and you know, which that, that was never my intention. That was not in my head when I wrote it. I don't write like that, you know, I don't write with an agenda, but, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was kind of amazed that they were willing to publish it in a book that would get that much attention because they're probably, you know, I'm sure there were, obviously there were undoubtedly people who responded to that and said, you know, how can you publish a story where someone's planning to have an abortion and then they change their mind. You know, that's, that's politically incorrect. Like you can't, you can't talk about this kind of thing. Um, so that was kind of surprising that, and you know, that particular story was rejected like 26 times, I think. Um, when i sometimes within like a 24 hour period, I mean, it was just boom, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they'd send it right back. And then uh, the Simmer in Review accepted it, and that's how it ended up getting nominated for the o. Henry. So it was just one editor who was willing to take a, take a chance on it. And that changed a lot for me, you know, because when you send stories to journals and you have to give them your quick bio, you can say, oh, I have a, a story in the o. Henry anthology. And then even if they don't like anything else about your resume, they might read it anyway. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> and know. next thing you know, you're getting more stories published and that leads to more books. And so it's, it's, it's all been it's all been a good thing. Very
0: grateful. Yeah, yeah I, I really admire your persistence. I mean, a, a lot of people would have just um, thought, well, there's there's there must be something wrong with the story if you know if, if people don't believe in it. Um, but that's, not, that's that's not the case. Um, so yeah, I like that you you stuck it out. Uh, and it, it's it's very sad that the 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 writing culture now is just so so willing to. Uh, to read like a political implication into into something like that, you know. Yeah. When it's, it's I mean, it's probably the case that um, I, I imagine that you arrived at that ending because it seemed warranted from the characterization, right?
1: Right. I mean, that's how it always goes. That's the way it mm-hmm. happens. They, they take over. I mean, people who aren't mm-hmm. writers don't understand that. They think that anything an artist creates is, is you're, you're in full control, right? And that's not how it works. And when you try to explain to someone, well, no, you know, characters become—they—they they start breathing, they start doing things. They look at you like you're insane, you know, because they don't—they—they <laughs> they can't grasp that. And I don't blame them, right? I mean, it's not their fault if their brain doesn't work like that. Then that's a big leap that you're asking that person to make. But mm-hmm. um, no, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I've never done that. If I, and honestly, if I catch myself, if I'm writing something and I realize. I'm only writing this because I have this thing, like an axe I want to grind, or something I want to say. Then that's it. I mean, I just terminate that project because I know it's not going to be organic. It's just me kind of kvetching. And what's the point of that? I mean, that might make me feel better when it's all said and done, but that's not that's not art. So I'm going to walk away from something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It can, it can be therapeutic, but it only kind of works as a piece if the therapy can apply to the other person too that's
1: right that's right that's why you you can't you can't submit a a journal entry or a diary entry Mm
0: -hmm. to a publisher it's just a really bad idea (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah um well speaking of that uh why do you why do you write in the first place you think
1: i mean what a question um honestly that that question for me is really darn close to asking you know, why do you believe, or why do you have a spiritual life? I feel like the answers are very similar. You know, I write because I want to search for truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to engage with it. I want to grow as a person. It's not just a matter of loving the craft or loving the act of writing, because a lot of times I hate the act of writing. It's very painful. You know, it's it's agonizing. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. fun. Um, but, you know, and I, I want to live my life as close to the numinous as I can. And writing to me is the most high stakes way that I can do that. Um, I think you, you can, you can tap into the numinous by reading something or watching a movie or listening to a very powerful piece of music. But when you're actually trying to engage with it, then you're, you're really taking chances. You're entering some pretty scary territory. And I guess I have a little bit of a, I don't know what's, what's that called like an adrenaline junkie, but on a spiritual level. (laughs) You know, um, I, I want to be in that space as, as comfortable, as uncomfortable and as high tension as it can be. I want to be in that space. And if, if things happen in my life where for some reason I can't for a long period of time, I just start withering. It's like, I need, I need that. I need that to feel like I'm growing and evolving and that I'm, that I'm whole. Um, so that's why I do it. I I think if I couldn't do it, I'd be really lost, honestly. Mm
0: -hmm. So in that way, you think that fiction can kind of help us get a truth and right?
1: Yes, I I think that's the whole function of art. Yeah, I think that's why people are afraid of it. That's why art is so scary. I mean, isn't that the whole point of a museum is to like, you put frames around things and you tuck them into these neatly organized rooms, and then you can pretend that you have mastery over them um you know make we can pretend like you can put these things in a filing cabinet and then they have less power so I think you know it's an instinct that's why you even put a frame around a painting it's just an instinct to say I can draw boundaries around this um because you're you're afraid of what it's going to do to you if you don't
0: yeah yeah I think that's why we we should care about fiction it can help us to to get at truth um and I think that part of it today, part of the problem today and why people aren't connecting with more artists is that p- people don't believe in truth in the art- in the artistic sphere anymore. They think that everything is subjective. You know, there's no truth. There's no objective beauty mm-hmm. to a piece. You know, there's no objective standard of what's good and so on and so forth. Um, and w- which is, I think, circular because they're assuming the truth of that, you know, that statement. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, of course.
0: Uh, I really admire that you're, willing to just be like i'm telling you what i think is true you know or like i'm trying to find out the truth through my fiction I'm trying yeah to that's
1: it. closer to what it is yeah i'm i'm right. discovering it as i'm writing you know i don't yeah. go in with oh i've learned this thing now i'm gonna invent some characters to help me show the world this yeah. thing that i know you know
0: right i mean yeah but it seems that seems that fiction is just not the place for preaching you know um, or, or art in general, I I think too. Um, it's just not the, it's not the place to proselytize. Right. Um, I mean, it it can't, it can't be a witness to something if, if you let it develop organically. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about Meridian, your short story in Solemn Journal volume two?
1: Um, well, uh, you know, (laughs) the trigger for that story was the weirdest thing. My husband was watching like a physics documentary and it was, highly involved and kind of over my head because I'm sort of a verbal person. I don't really I'm one of those people I barely made it through my math and science classes (laughs) all through high school and college. Um but he he likes these things. So he, he had this on and I was actually reading while he was watching it and I just kept putting the book down and looking up and I was like, wait a second, there's something going on here. And then after he finished it, um I, you know, I found it on Amazon and then I watched it at work and my office hours like three times and I realized there's I don't know how this is going to end up being a story but it is going to be because there was something you know very kind of upsetting um about these concepts that they were being discussed in this this physics documentary and I just let it be because I don't I don't overthink I just kind of let it sit in the back of my head um and I had been kind of had this character in my mind for a while this woman who is kind of obsessed with revenge and Next thing I knew, the two were sort of crossing together. I mean, that's that's how it goes. You know, it's like different things just sort of ferment in my head for a while, and then I wake up and I realize they belong together. And so I I just started started writing this.
0: Hmm. Well, why don't you tell us what the uh, title means?
1: Um, actually, I was thinking about when I came up with the title, I was thinking about um, Solzhenitsyn's line about how the line between good and evil cuts straight through the heart of every man. And Mm. that's, I realized when I finished the story, that was the essence of the story, right? I mean, she even draws a physical line down her palm with a knife in that final scene. Um, You know, it's, it's, it's symbolic, you know, it's, it's meant to represent this idea that we all have the shadow within. And she makes that discovery at the end of the story and it starts to transform her as a person. And then I just, was just the word i thought meridian was a good word to kind of encapsulate that that idea
0: would you consider the story psychological fiction
1: yeah i i actually probably would consider most of my work you know if you had to, to put into some kind of category psychological yeah i mean that's what interests me the human psyche the human
0: spirit right i mean um but to that end, do you do you kind of hesitate to put genre labels on your fiction? Just yes. At all? <laughs> oh, <okay.
1: laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I've you know I've had people ask me like, oh, do you write regional fiction? Uh, you know, southern fiction, or whatever. I just I hate that honestly because mm-hmm. like as soon as you you apply a label to it, people are expecting certain elements to be there. They're expecting certain formulas, and I, I mean, I just don't write that way. Honestly, that's part of the reason it's it's hard. It's probably harder for me than it is for some writers to publish short story collections because publishers really like it when they're linked or there's some kind of common theme, mm-hmm. and I, I don't do that. I mean, I I never could. I can't imagine writing a story being like, well, how can I make this fit into this box? So I'm not going to mm-hmm. write this until I know that it fits. Like for me, each story is a completely different universe. It's its own thing. It's the only thing until it's done, and then mm-hmm. some other thing is going to happen in two more months, and that's its own thing. Um, and, you know, the last couple of books I wrote, most of the stories were set here in Tennessee, because this is where I've lived now for 10 years. And I know the area and, um, you know, it was just natural, but I didn't set out to write regional fiction. So, yeah, I mean, I, I if people ask me what I write, I just say literary fiction. That's it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that does that, that, that make sense. Um, and, yeah, I, I hear the kind of the same thing with musicians. Um I guess it is kind of an advertising thing. Like if if you, if you ascribe it to some certain genre, then it's easier to find or, right, or easier right. to sell or, you know, whatever. I mean, um, but I guess truth isn't really a concern with, uh, with genre, you know?
1: No, it's not.
0: <laughs> so, so yeah, no, I, I like that. Um, so in Meridian, there's two narrative streams that go on simultaneously. Uh, well, not simultaneously, but um one of these streams is uh eva's dealing with the death of her family which spurs her on to exact revenge and then there's also um a school shooting uh that that occurs before the before the story starts how do you think that those things those two streams of narrative complement each other
1: well i i needed both because they're, they're contrasting with each other because like the first one is earlier in time and, you know, the first time around when, you know, her, her husband and daughter are killed, she's in this, you know, vengeful mode, right? She's just full of rage and resentment and Mm -hmm. it ends, it ends badly in that, you know, she doesn't actually kill this, this woman who, who murdered her family, but the only reason she decides not to kill her is because she knows she's going to get caught. So there's no sort of spiritual evolution. And then the second time around when she wants revenge after the school shooting, this time she gets it right. This time there's actually an evolution where by the end of the story, she's in a different place. She's no longer just resentful and projecting all her, all her rage and disappointment and grief onto the outside world. Um, So I kind of, I wanted to show, you know, the first time around, there was no change. And the second time, all the right factors kind of come in come into play in her life and she actually has a chance to to evolve and move mm-hmm. up you know
0: mm-hmm. so in that way you would you would say that uh, eva does experience some um, some movement you know and some pro- some progress
1: oh yeah definitely i mean i i didn't want the ending to be i really struggled writing the ending the last like paragraph because i didn't want it to be cheesy you know where it's just oh, you know, she has this dream um, that kind of fixes everything for her. And now she's just, everything's perfect. But I'm just hoping that, you know, the implication is she's starting to change in a very significant way. You know, she goes out and she buys Ira lunch. And it's the first thing she's probably done for another human being in three years. She's getting outside of herself. And then when she flips the channel on the TV and human faces appear, um, it's the same idea. It's that, you know she spent the last few years she doesn't even see people right she just sees everyone she sees is just a symbol of an idea mm-hmm. and so it's easier for her to hate them to project her hatred onto them because they're not individuals but by the end of the story you know through ira and then you know these experiences these dreams and visions it's starting to that's starting to shift it's a seismic shift in her her personality and her spirituality where instead of seeing people as just they're just representatives of all the things that she hates they're people they're individual people so maybe from this point on you know there's there's upward movement
0: mm. it's it did seem like there was some kind of spiritual growth with for eva um not not like necessarily like a, a christian conversion or anything like that um but like almost kind of a, a resurrection of her soul in a way um would yeah so that that's that's kind of fair
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that, and for her, the way that happens is her recognition of her own shadow. You know, when she, in that final kind of vision, when she realizes that the reason this kid didn't fire on her was he looked at her and he knew that her soul was already gone. What was the point? You know Um, she's, she's a nihilist. There was, there was nothing to be killed. And I think when she realizes that that's the person she's become and that she has all this darkness within her, and it's not something she can just pin on the people around her. That's when the big—that's when the big shift takes
0: place. Mm. Yeah, I, I know that you don't like set out to, you know, um, like to be a proponent of one any particular like view when you when you write, but um, it's it's it does seem like leading away from nihilism. Um, I, I don't want to say that was intentional, but I mean, do you think that in the end? there was some kind of purpose to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, like I said, I, I don't write with an agenda, but everyone's beliefs um, and their passions obviously are going to weave themselves into their work in some way, you know, and I, you know, this happens a lot in my stories where characters end up sort of confronting themselves in a way Mm -hmm. they haven't before. Um, And, you know, to me, that is, I mean, that's the Christian message, right? It's not the only religion that works this way, but that you can't really move forward until you start working on this, until you start Mm -hmm. self-confronting. You know, and I try to, my characters are often, you know, I catch them in these sort of critical moments where whatever decision they end up making is going to decide how their spiritual future is going to look, right? Are they going to be at war with the best version of themselves or are they going to be in harmony with the best version of themselves? And I think Ava's, she's moving towards the latter, you know, at the
0: end of the story. Right. It kind of reminds me of, and I can't remember who told me this, but it was a Flannery O'Connor quote on how she wanted to um, write characters who at the end of the story act both in character and then go beyond character. Mm. Um, So, yeah. So yeah, I, I I kind of I kind of see that uh, with you too. And just offhand, are you are you influenced at all by Flannery's work?
1: Yes, I. One of my favorite professors was a Flannery O'Connor scholar, um, and I love her work. And I usually teach one or two of her stories every semester.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Reading uh, reading through Flannery's uh, short stories just recently, I, I kind of like paired that in Smerdi, and I was like, hey, there's a, there's a lot of stylistic similarities here.
1: Oh, school. that's quite a compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's a heck of a writer. She's incredible.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And, uh, and from Iowa too, uh, the mm-hmm. Iowa workshop. Yeah. Um, well, was there any particular reason that you wanted to make Eva an academic in the story?
1: Uh, you know, academics, they really interest me um, because they think too much. And there's, it's like buried somewhere in Carl Jung's writing. He has this line where he says that um, the intellect is a great cheat and illusionist when it tries to manipulate values. Mm. And a, that's what a lot of academics do is they try to create, they try to invent values severed from the spiritual, severed from the spiritual realm. And that's, that's what Ava does. I mean, she's highly intelligent. She's an academic and that's, this is how her mind works is she sort of invented this kind of logical system and she's pretty blunt about it. And there's a couple passages, I, I think, throughout the story where she basically says that, you know, the gods from all these different religions are just sort of flaccid um, because they don't know how to exercise justice. And she thinks she has a corner on that, that idea, right? She's figured it out. This is what justice should look like. And I have every right to carry it out. Um, and, you know, again, this wasn't planned. When I looked back at the story and read it, and I realized, you know, it made perfect sense that what ends up sort of tipping her... It's these, it's all these kind of dreams slash visions. I guess they're more dreams that she's having throughout the course of the story that are kind of triggered by things that Ira says to her or the pictures he's showing her in that physics book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, dreams, that's our bridge to the unconscious, right? And some people would argue that's the bridge to the spiritual or even to God. And that's how she gets there is not by thinking through it intellectually but through this kind of much more mysterious, <laughs> um, inexplicable way where she has these these visions. And it's almost like the, that other part of her mind is helping her work through things and helping her get to the truth. Whereas she couldn't, she wasn't able to do this on a purely intellectual or logical plane.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Ira's name keeps coming up a lot. Uh, he, he, ser- he seems to be in a way like the, the glue that holds the story together. Um, so he's almost, he, he's, he's quite, a, he's quite an important character, isn't he?
1: Yeah. I, I actually see the two of them as a kind of yin yang where, mm-hmm. and, you know, I didn't even realize it again until after I wrote it, that their names are almost identical. Um, he's, you know, he's her counterpoint. He's, he's, he's a person who believes, um, he's humble. He's mm-hmm. clearly suffered. We don't know how, and it doesn't matter how, but he has suffered, But instead of blaming the world, his response to that is to take some burden on himself, right? Like he says, I came to this school because if anything else happens, I want to be ready to protect these kids. You know, like he wants Mm -hmm. to, he wants to take on responsibility. Um, And he's the one who's kind of feeding her these images and ideas through these lectures that she overhears and that the, the pictures he shows her and those things end up, like I said, kind of seeding um, into her dreams. So yeah, they're, they're working together, almost like almost like a yin yang. Like she needs someone who's her her total opposite to to work on her in that way to kind of start moving her character development forward.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, the woman who killed Eva's family in a car wreck, uh, she suffers from grief as well. We come to find out. Um, do you think that the story um, is an examination of grief and how it affects different people?
1: I had, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there is something to that. And I think, you know, when, when I'm trying to think how to phrase this, I think that, you know, because of culture and Hollywood and things like that, that a lot of people have this idea that evil um, stems from, you know, someone's, someone's, there's something wrong in like in them that's just, it's intrinsically, it's already there. You know, when you have someone who grows up to be a murderer, right? The question is, well, what's wrong with that person? And, um, I I don't think it occurs to too many people that for a lot of people, quote unquote, evil, if that's the word you want to use, it starts with grief. It starts with, you know, someone's plunged into sorrow and they don't have faith, um, to kind of get them through that. And so their response to grief is rage and resentment and a murderous heart. Um, and that's, that's Ava all the way. I mean, that's, that's who she is. Like, you know, she makes it very clear that she's never had a kind of a spiritual life. She's never believed in any kind of higher purpose. And so when life throws this horrible tragedy at her and she's thrown into grief, her response is rage. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a violent, it's a violent response. Um, And I, I think this happens to a lot of people. Like they, they go through a, a terrible loss. They lose a child, you know, God knows what it is. And, um, Instead of being softened by that experience, which other people are, they're hardened by it, and then they they start trying to they start trying to seek justice in their own kind of way, right, for that thing that they lost. They want to be compensated for their loss, and so they start hurting other people or suing people or whatever it is that is at hand, right, that they can do to compensate for what's been taken from them.
0: Right, evil is not just in the realm of psychopaths. Um, I mean, we're all capable of it, uh, yeah, depending on you know what we've been through and how we respond. Um, so yeah, I, I quite like that a lot. Uh, now, some of your work is influenced by Christian theology. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, um, I you know, I really believe that the Christ path, the path of the the oldest heroes and all the really old myths like Gilgamesh and Beowulf and the heroes in Tolkien's novels, I think that's the artist's path. I think that um, to, to create art, you have to go into the darkness, you have to suffer, you have to go into unknown territory, you have to self-confront, um, you know, that's the straight and narrow gate. And I think that's the, that's the only route to, to creating something that's, that's worth a damn. And you know, like when I teach um, creative writing and sometimes in actually my upper level literature classes, I always I'll start by telling students that the most important story in the world can be told in five words. The truth teller must die. And, you know, on, on first glance, we can say, OK, well, if you look at history um, and in fiction, you know, that's that's literally true. Right. Historically, you know, Socrates, Christ, all these different saints, sometimes even scientists, anyone who speaks an uncomfortable truth. Society is going to try to burn that person down, right? But on a mm-hmm. on a deeper level, it applies. It applies to the artist um, because if you want to speak the truth, some part of you has to die first. Um, you have to admit there are things you don't know because art is discovered, not made. You don't make it; you discover it. And I think you know Christianity tells that story in which your suffering has meaning. You don't climb up the hill with the burden on your back. Um, because it's rational, or because the group tells you to do it, or because you want to be seen doing it, you do it because that's the only way that you can figure out who you're meant to be, and that you can find fulfillment, and you're making all these discoveries as you do this, right? You're learning things you didn't know, and that's the process of making art: is that you're going into a place you've never been, and it's going to be terrifying, and you're going to have to self-confront in a way that's not comfortable. Um, but once you do that, you can maybe bring something to the world. Right. As opposed to what I see as sort of the opposite tactic, like you'd get from like an ideologically possessed person where they sit down to write um, and they end up basically just promoting an agenda. You know, they, they write and they think like a totalitarian, like everything I know is everything I need to know. I'm going to take this thing I know, and now I'm going to turn it into a novel or, a, you know, a poem or whatever it is. Um so there's no active discovery. And I think that kind of work ends up being pretty sterile and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't last, doesn't have an impact on the human heart anyway. So um, you know, my view of what it is to be a good Christian, to be, you know, to fulfill your spiritual path, let's say, feeds pretty directly into my artistic process. Because if I catch myself um kind of coming at it the wrong way, where it is, like I said earlier, I'm just I have an idea. And now I'm just trying to push it on someone then I know that I have to have to walk away from that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. there, there are certainly um, some commonalities between uh, different religious systems and the component of suffering and, and all that and feeding that into their narrative. But is there um, any particular reason that you find the Christian narrative uh, different or particularly inspiring?
1: Well, I mean, that's a tough question to answer, but I think the you know the first thing about the Christian narrative, I think the most important thing is the emphasis on individual responsibility. Um, you know, participating in your own redemption—that's that's like the supremely creative act. There's nothing more creative that you can do, right? And I think Christian or not, everyone knows deep down this is what it takes to reach fulfillment as a human being because the toughest way is always going to be the most meaningful way. And Christianity, you know, emphasizes that. You take the darkest route through the forest. That's how you get there. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is um, the stress that's placed on individual transcendent experience. And I think it was maybe like two years ago that um, a really good friend of mine, he sent me this quote that he had found something Dostoevsky had said. And I was shocked I'd never seen it before because I've been studying Dostoevsky for like 15 years. And... Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was, I think it was from a, a biography, but, um, it was something he said when he was released from uh, Siberian prison and I hope I don't butcher this, but he said, if someone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth and the truth was outside Christ, then I would rather remain with Christ than with the truth. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, God, he nailed it. I mean, that's, that's it. That's Christianity. And, you know, that's actually, um probably the Brothers Karamazov summed up into one sentence, <laughs> because, you know, when I heard this, I thought right away about um, that, that chapter in early in Brothers Karamazov where Ivan and Alyosha Karamazov have this conversation, and Ivan presents this very brilliant logical argument that's meant to sort of decimate Alyosha's faith in, in God, in Christ, or in the kind of larger purpose for the universe. And it is a brilliant argument. It's, it's really difficult to, to, to rebut it. And I, you know, the readers know that there's no way Alyosha has the intellect to battle what he's just heard, even though he's, he's a believer, he's very deeply spiritual. And you're kind of waiting to see what happens. What Alyosha does is he stands up to leave, but he just kisses his brother before he goes. And it just completely, you know, knocks Yvonne down because Yvonne is intelligent enough to understand the symbolic value of what's just happened. And the thing is, you know, Alyosha, um, he can love irrationally because he's he's open to possibilities outside of what he can recognize on a purely intellectual level. And Yvonne cannot love like that. He's not capable of really love at all, you know, you might argue, because he's not open to that. Um, and the reason Alyosha has access to this is because he is open to, he has all these individual transcendent experiences as a very spiritual person. And these, you know, these experiences link him to that higher purpose, right? That sort of that hidden world that, you know, we all have this yearning for. Um, and, you know, Christianity shows us how to live like that. It shows us how to, you exist in profane time, but you, you, Partake in sacred time, and you use what you learn from the latter to enrich the former. Mm. And I love that. You know, I mean, what more can you ask for?
0: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The, the
1: the value of those experiences.
0: So, what do you think that uh, Christian writers can do to improve their craft?
1: Well, I mean, you know, when I hear that that phrase "Christian writers" or when I think of Christian fiction, like the image that pops into my head is like the inside of a Christian bookstore, you know um And I mean, you know, I don't want to offend anybody, but the, I guess the kind of stuff that's being published under that genre that they're calling Christian fiction is just tends to be pretty insipid, um, pretty formulaic and kind of empty. I mean, I don't think I've ever read anything that you'd pull off a shelf in that section of a bookstore and you know, where I was actually moved by it and thought, this is you know there's revelation here um that doesn't happen like i i think that if i if i met someone who said i'm a christian and i want to write literary fiction i want to make art then i would say well make sure that's really the road you're on like don't don't start writing genre fiction you know christian pop fiction let's say don't write for like a, a wednesday night church youth group like write your write like a literary writer where you are open to questioning and your audience, your readers are going to be open to questioning. Um, You know, write for people who would rather learn something than just be affirmed in what they already know. And I think that's a lot of what Christian fiction does, is it just makes people feel comfortable with what they already know and believe. And there's no real purpose to that. I mean, even the Bible doesn't do that. (laughs) Um, Because art is supposed to, it's supposed to needle people, not comfort them. And there's, there's absolutely no excuse for, for Christian literature to be any different. I think it's actually just the opposite. I think there's an even bigger responsibility. If you're a Christian, then you better be writing things that are asking tough questions, um, that, you know, something that takes on a high level of accountability because you need to practice what you, what you preach.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, and if we, I mean, if we just kind of pump out uh, literature that's supposed to be uh, comforting or... Or whatever, then all you have is like comfort food. Um, right. Right. I mean, there, there's really, there's no substance to, uh, to, to, the work, but why don't you tell us what the future kind of looks like for you now?
1: Well, my, my fourth, uh, book of short stories, palindrome is supposed to come out. I think fall 2022 was the most recent, um, update I had. And, um, those stories are all, I didn't, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I was working my way towards writing my first legit novel. And I think because I was getting into that mode, the stories are incredibly long <laughs> mm-hmm. and I should have known what was happening um, because just about as soon as I finished that book, then I, I ended up transitioning and working on this novel. Um, I've actually written two or three novel manuscripts in the past, but they were just garbage. Um, so they, they're gone. They're in the, they're in a bonfire somewhere. Um, they were like kind of training wheels, I guess. And, um, but this one I spent pretty much the entire, what I think of as the COVID year, this really this entire past year, because, um, the college where I worked went completely online. I was home all the time. Um, and it's not actually that I had more time on my hands, but I had more mental space than I usually have access to because I was physically separated from work Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: this novel had probably been in the making for about 10 years and I just I've been sort of running from it running and hiding from it for a really long time I was very afraid to to sit down and try to do this and then in this past year just it just happened everything just kind of fell into place and it was time Mm -hmm. um so I pretty much spent the whole year working on that and I'm I you know I've I've sent it to the same, uh, my editor at Texas Review Press, but other than that, I've kept it pretty close to the chest because it's fairly, fairly new, but that's what I'm hoping, hoping to publish after the short story collection.
0: Mm. And this is the one set in Wisconsin, right?
1: Yes, Uh, it's called Third Class Relics, and it's set way, way up there in northern Wisconsin on Lake Mm. Michigan.
0: Nice. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to that, so... Uh, Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate your time and just uh, you being willing to come on. So thank you.
1: No, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, too.
0: All right. Great. All right. Thank you for listening.